And uh, can I thank Cheryl because she's just validated this instinct I've had my whole life is when I see a chihuahua, I see it as a football. So uh, I really appreciate that, Cheryl. I feel sort of the days of guilt are gone. And I won't try to exercise self-control with such a... Uh, but I have to say, it's, uh, it's both a great privilege to be asked to, uh, to preach in the marriage series, but also, I have to say, a little bit intimidating. Since I've been asked, I've been thinking, gosh, you know, I've been able to sort of fly under the radar at Catalyst. Now they're going to think I'm this marriage guru. And uh, I had visions and dreams of, you know, just everyone sort of watching me from this point on and watching Trish and I as we're lining up for a coffee. And just as soon as we exchange a slightly surly glance, we're going to hear that hypocrite! <laughs> So go easy on me. I'm, I'm absolutely no guru when it comes to this. I'm no marital guru, but I, am, I have been blessed with a great marriage, not a perfect marriage. I can relate to so much of what Russ and Cheryl uh, were saying in our own journey. Uh, far from perfect. But I have been blessed to see God at work in our marriage over 18 years. And, um, and I'm absolutely convinced that he must be at the centre of your marriage if it's going to be a sustainable and enjoyable and a fruitful relationship. And as I'll say again, marriage is not something to be endured. It's something that can be an incredible source of blessing to you and others. Your marriage can be a sanctuary for you and others. And I want to put that up there as a bit of a vision today. Marriage is not just something to be endured. Have a vision for marriage, and I hope you leave with something of a vision for marriage this morning. So this morning, as you hear, I'll be bringing the third instalment in our series, having followed two guys who I believe are marital gurus, that's Carl and John, and that's on the mission of marriage, or marriage as a mission. You know, I'm glad I was assigned this particular topic, marriage as a mission, because the first time I laid eyes on my now wife, Trish, I thought, there is my missional perfect match. There is my pastoral partner. There is my gospel girlfriend. No, I didn't actually. I thought, she's pretty hot, you know. <laughs> but it was a church, okay? I was in church, which was unusual for me back then, and I was disillusioned with my previous relationships with unchurched girls, and I thought, I need to go to church. I finally took my grandmother's advice, rocked up to church, and went hunting for a partner, and saw Trish. And I have to say, I don't think it happens like this very often, but a little light did go, and I did actually think, apart from she's a stunning-looking chick, I did think, yeah, there's something about her. Something's just moved in my heart. I went back and told my mum and she prayed for me. So there you go. Very interesting. But I can testify that when you allow God to be at the centre of your marriage, when your marriage is grounded in Him, your, your marriage does become a mission. Not a mission to save your marriage, but a mission that blesses you and blesses others around you, that blesses your community, your faith community, your everyday community. When your marriage is a, is a mission, and I can relate to what Russ and Cheryl said this morning, that was brilliant. When your marriage is a mission, um, it transforms the way you see each other. You know, you heard that. Your differences become an asset. Your diversity can actually bring harmony. On the other hand, but when you're not in step with God, uh, when you're not walking with God, when you're not allowing Christ to reign in your marriage, those differences can actually become a liability, can't they? which is what Russ and Cheryl were talking about on those days when you're not in step with God. And let's be honest, there will be days when we're very good at taking control of our marriage and our relationships and keeping God out, and those differences can become a liability, and that diversity can actually be a cause of conflict and friction in the marriage. And this has been Trisha's and my story. 
You know, when we're walking in God's will and walking with him, our marriage is an amazing sanctuary for ourselves and I believe for others. Most importantly, our kids. It can be a sanctuary. It can be sort of this transforming forum. It's a, it can be an amazing thing. But when we don't involve God, when we try to take control, when we remove him from the centre, it's like what Russ and Cheryl say, it can be pretty tough going. Let's be honest about that. Let's own that. You see, Trish and I, sounds like Russ and Cheryl, which is very comforting, are absolutely chalk and cheese in pretty much every arena of our lives. When the guy who did our marriage counsellor came back, you know, with the marriage survey results, anyone done one of those marriage surveys? He came back and he sat down, and he's normally a very measured man, but he looked at us and he had a genuine look of panic <laughs> in his face. And he actually looked at us and said, are you sure you want to go through with this? Because we ticked pretty much every conflict box. First of all, the family box. My family are loud, opinionated, extravagant, risk-takers. For my dad, it's not a fishing trip unless it involves marlin, the world's most technological fishing reels, and about 100 kilometres between the boat and the shore. You know, for, my, for Trisha's family, it really is like walking into a scene from the castle. I've sat there on so many Christmases where they've got the training post, and quite seriously, my brother-in-law is going, hey, Dad, 200 metres of poly, one inch, $100. And he literally goes, tell them they're dreaming. It's one of those, you know, they're conservative, they're measured, they're risk-averse. Uh, when, uh, when it comes to finance, oh, they're, they're the sort of couple, Trisha's parents, and I love them dearly, and I've run all of this by my wife, I can say, he'll be in the second sermon. You know, they're the sort of couple that when they go on an hour drive, they will take camper chairs and a thermos. <laughs> we relate to that, you know where I'm coming from. When it comes to finance, for our family, debt is to be embraced. For her family, debt is evil. When it comes to outlook, we're cup half full, they're cup half empty. When it comes to love language, you know, I'm, come on, Trish, let's go away somewhere exotic. Let's do something dangerous and interesting. And she is, go and fix the clothesline. (laughs) Now, we are chalk and cheese. Yet we both absolutely know. We both have an absolute conviction that God brought us together. So when we met and started courting, it's an old-fashioned term, isn't it? But I was working as a journalist, first of all in Toowoomba, then Rockhampton, and then Melbourne, while Trish was studying at the University of Queensland. And we had about a four-year distance courtship. But the beauty of that is we were both sort of fairly fresh in our faith. Where we actually got to spend most of our quality time was on ministry or mission events. We went to Coolangatta Beach Mission and, and Burley Beach Mission. And the beauty of early on in your courtship, if you're in a relationship here or contemplating being in a relationship or perhaps your relationship needs a bit of a God circuit breaker, go on a mission trip together. Because when you're on mission together as a couple, it's sort of like God puts this infrared spotlight on your partner's heart. And I really liked what I saw in my partner. I wouldn't have seen it except for this sort of out-of-world experience. I saw her incredible heart for at-risk girls. I saw her incredible heart for worship. I saw her incredible ability to just quietly build a sense of community on the mission team. And I love that. I fell in love with that part of Trish, which was fantastic. And uh, so we, uh, we moved. Uh, I was down in Melbourne working as a journalist, and we got married, and Trish moved down, and we had this tiny little two-bedroom apartment in Camberwell, because if you know Camberwell and Melbourne, you can only afford a tiny two-bedroom apartment. And we were newlyweds, but we broke the unwritten rule of church 
for young married in those days, which was to say, okay, withdraw from all activity and just focus on yourself. We threw ourselves into ministry. We inherited a life group that uh, proved to be a magnet for every broken, marginalised young adult in that church and beyond that church. Within six months, our life group had grown to 36 people. And at 4pm, we felt so inadequate because it was our first time in a Pentecostal church and, you know, they, they sort of had assigned me a leadership role but whenever I prayed for someone, no one fell over and I felt like a spiritual fraud and I couldn't believe people were going to come to my life group but they came and they kept coming. So at 4 o'clock, uh, before the first person came at 5 o'clock, like clockwork, even though our life group started at 7 o'clock, I was on my knees and we were just praying. And we saw God move in the most extraordinary ways. We saw people delivered in our living room. We saw people manifesting in our bedroom because they had to meet all over the place. We opened our homes up. And again, I was just captivated by Trisha's heart. I was trapped, captivated by how God had wired her for mission and for ministry. And I realised that even though we were unbelievably different, even though that survey legitimately showed that we probably shouldn't be together if this was a worldly union we should never have been together that we were in some ways a missional perfect match and uh, not everyone's going to be able to experience this in the early days of their marriage not everyone's going to be able to have those experiences but can I encourage you to keep putting yourselves in positions where you get to really be captivated by God how God has wired your partner and sometimes the routine of the everyday doesn't allow that. So maybe you need to turn up as a couple to this mission meeting afterwards to consider India, to consider Papua New Guinea, to consider a beach, just to consider an experience that really does allow God to put the spotlight on your partner and give you a fresh appreciation, particularly if you're just contemplating or if you're in a new relationship. would really encourage that as a great thing to do. Okay, and to learn very early that being a couple can either double or halve your effectiveness for God. Being a couple can either double or halve your effectiveness for God. So having the right attitude there. So why is marriage a mission? And how, it is, how is marriage a mission? I want to touch on that this morning and I want to go back to the passage that I guess has become a bit of a theme for this series and that's Ephesians chapter 5 verses 21 to 33. If you have a Bible, I'll be reading from the NIV. Ephesians chapter 5 verses 21 to 33 up on the screen submit to one another out of reverence for Christ wives submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord for the husband is the head of the wife as the Christ as Christ is the head of the church his body of which he is the saviour now as the church submits to Christ so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by washing with water throughout, through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they, fear, they, they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. 
It's a great passage. It's a controversial passage. It's a passage where Paul sort of seeks to put up a, this parallel or this comparison between the relationship between Jesus and his church and the husband and the wife. But before we unpack that, I want to just go back to the beginning of chapter 5, to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. So I think it's important to remember that the Bible is not just a collection of random verses sort of clustered together to help us in specific situations. But in the case of Ephesians, this was a specific letter written to a specific faith community confronting specific challenges at that time. And the, t- and the principles are timeless and spirit-led, but it's important that we understand the context a little bit. So let's go back to the beginning. Um, verses 1 to 2. And, and the context, I should say, facing the Ephesians or the believers at Ephesus were, you know, Paul wasn't addressing a particular challenge or dysfunction, but this was a group of believers in a fledgling church who were really up against it. They were enduring persecution from their, from their pagan neighbours and friends and communities. They were being thrown out of their homes. And Paul wants to sort of raise their sights. He wants to sort of give them this panoramic perspective of who they are in Christ and what they can expect as followers of Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a real hope-filled book, and I hope you experience that this morning. But in verses 1 to 2, Paul says, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Here you see a really important and fairly typical pattern from Paul. Before he dispenses wisdom and counsel and instruction on how to live a righteous life or a holy life, before he spells out the what is expected from us as Christians, he always reinforces the who. He said, therefore, because you are dearly loved children, so your status, before you even start on this journey, you are dearly loved children. That's your status. You can't undo that. You don't cease to become God's dearly loved children just because you stuff up or because you sin, which you will, any more than if one of your children stuffs up or sins or misbehaves, you cease becoming their parent. If anything, you become more intentional, don't you, when your kids are struggling. So Paul wants you to start. You start this journey understanding that your status is children of God. It's not something to be obtained. It's something that was actually earned for you on the cross of Jesus Christ. Amen? And because of that, and in view of that, and in response to that, he says, imitate Christ. Imitate God. In response to the fact that your children of God imitate God. Your children, that's your status. You know, I was in uh, Thailand a couple of weeks ago on business, and I took with me a few uh, consultants, and we got to Bangkok uh, uh, 24 hours earlier than we anticipated. And through my old church in Melbourne, we supported a group called Urban Neighbourhoods of Hope who uh, ran a, uh, ran a uh, sort of microfinance mission in the slums of Klong Toy. Klong Toy is basically 50,000 people squatting on five hectares of government-owned portland. They're squatting on a sewer. And as I walked through there praying for my colleagues who weren't Christians, and this was a bit of a sneaky way to sort of get God on the radar, was when you're in Bangkok, you want to make sure God's on the radar... And I'm walking through in these tiny houses just squatting on this open sewer and dogs with mange walking past. But then these two ladies from Australia who faithfully live in the slum and create microfinance opportunities. And these blokes were just blown away. These are big venture capital raising business gurus and they are just being humbled by their 
And I'd, I'd worded them up to say, look, these guys are pretty open, but they don't yet know. So every time we met a person who was in absolute despair and this sense of hopelessness, she'd turn around and said, guys, do you know why they're like this? Do you know why they don't think they can ever be anything but slum dogs, which is the expression there? It's because their Buddhist worldview tells them that they're there because of something they did in a previous life. So their identity, they deserve to be slum dogs and they don't aspire for anything else for their kids. And then we met a Christian, a lady called Pooh, believe it or not, who now runs a cooking school called Cooking with Pooh. <laughs> you can Google it. And they met and the transformation was extraordinary from a person who was being loved by these people but just looked despondent. And when you press and they said, this is my life, this is, this is who I am. I am a slum dog because of what I've done. And you met Pooh. And Pooh is full of hope. And they said to Pooh, Pooh, why don't you go and run your, your cooking school outside of the... Because their identity was attached in where they were too. And she said, I don't need to. I'm a child of God. I can express that wherever I am. My identity is not my circumstances. And folks, the most powerful foundation for any marriage is to recognise that you are children of God. You are called to imitate God. So you don't go into that marriage situation hoping that that marriage will nourish your identity. You go into that marriage situation saying, my identity is actually going to nourish this marriage. Does that make sense? It's a huge distinction. And I love the way Paul continually brings it back to that. The rest of this passage then unpacks that to imitate God is not to imitate some vague deity, but to imitate the God-man. Jesus Christ. You know, Colossians says that he is the image of the invisible God. Unlike Buddhism and so many other faiths where you're sort of meditating on this vague concept of a deity, we have a concrete God-man to follow. And it goes on to say, well, what does it look like to imitate Jesus Christ, the greatest man who's ever walked on earth? Well, verse 3 to 6 goes on. I'll just paraphrase here. Verses 3 to 6 of Ephesians 5 says, it goes on to say, imitating Christ means living a righteous life. Avoiding sexual immorality, avoiding greed, impurity, obscenity, idolatry. And I don't know about you, but it seems like the church in the West has just diluted right down the emphasis on holiness. We've ramped up the emphasis on justice, which we should. We've ramped up the emphasis on unconditional love, which we should. But folks, imitating God's means we're imitating love, we're imitating justice, but we are also imitating holiness. And it's not because God is a naysayer. It's because living that way is actually really good for you. Living that way actually nourishes marriages. So young people, I know the temptations you're up against. They're unbelievable compared to what I was wrestling with 20 years ago. But please, don't forget, he is a holy God. He puts that emphasis on for a reason. Avoiding those things will set you up for a great marriage and a great relationship. Hold each other accountable. Aspire to those levels of holiness, not because you have to obtain them, like our Buddhist friends think, because that standard's actually already been obtained for you. Okay, you can live in response to that. Okay, and uh, I'll move on from that. I won't harbour on that. When we compromise this, when we compromise God's standard for holiness, when we, when we fall into those patterns of sexual promiscuity, of obscenity, of idolatry, we actually, it actually compromises our witness. You know, a witness in the Greek is something that points someone to something else. To be a witness to Christ means that your whole life should point people to him. 
in the marriage context, your marriage should point people to Jesus Christ. That's what it means for your marriage to be a mission. And when we compromise that, that's when we compromise our, our discipleship. Verses 8 to 14 says that we have been transported from the darkness into the light. But it takes it further. We haven't just been transported from being people who were in the darkness to people who are now in the light. The actual translation means we have been transported from being darkness to being light. You are the light of the world. That's your mission. You go into dark places like the slums of Klong Toy or your workplace or your school or your university where all sorts of destructive, degrading practices are happening or the marriage arena or the home where where people's worldview now is a destructive pattern, and you bring light. You point people to another way of doing life. And I hope you don't underestimate the source of light and hope that your marriage can be. Uh, Verse, uh, you know, again, just coming back to this trip to Bangkok. You know, I was really quite nervous because since I've left full-time paid ministry and being in business, this was really my first real test. I was going over to China and I was going over to Bangkok with a bunch of consultants who when they go to Bangkok they have certain activities in mind and uh, I was quite fearful I, I wasn't afraid of engaging in those activities myself but I was really asking God how can I I don't want these boys to go there number one they're on my time and my clock and I want to make that fairly clear so God amazingly we had a window we were meant to be in China for 24 hours long we, we got to we got to Bangkok 24 hours and we expected a pure God thing, a rearrangement of mission. So suddenly I had half a day in Bangkok. So I organised this trip to Klong Toy. Exposing these people to people who were in the light completely changed the tone. And after that, these guys were broken. They were sombre. They were reflective. They were ringing their wives. And it gave me a window to say, boys, you're on my clock. You're on my agenda tonight. So instead of the boys going out to the usual areas, they might go and say, we're meeting in the hotel. We're having drinks till 10.30, then you're going to bed. I actually said that. <laughs> and as we're sitting around having a drink, the guys ask me, Duncan, why, why are you into this stuff? And I got a chance to share my faith. We can be light in those situations. And that's God's intention for your marriage. Not that it is something to be endured, but it is a source of light for a broken world that has completely lost hope in the longevity of relationships. We live in the era of dating apps. We live in the era of hookups. I mean, some of the flipping, flopping reality shows that are about to hit our screens on marriage is just downright degrading. And we need to be an incredible alternative to that. And I saw the power of that just briefly in Bangkok. So the platform is set. Paul sets the platform. Our mission is to imitate God. We're his children, and our mission is to imitate him. Our mission is to be light. Then when it comes to verse 21, and Paul introduces the marriage context... And he esteems, and you've heard Carl and John refer to this, he esteems the importance and the significance of this relationship by comparing it with the second most important relationship there is. The most important is the relationship between the Trinity. The second most important is the relationship between Jesus and his church. And he puts marriage on that pedestal. That's why, folks, we can't take it lightly. It's not to make us feel intimidated, but make, to make us feel and to realise that we're actually a part of something very, very special. If you're in a marriage relationship, you're considering being in a marriage relationship. And uh, he, he draws the comparisons by saying in verse 24 and 25, Now as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to their husbands in everything. 
Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And, uh, and then he talks about the end goal for marriage as compared to the end goal for the church in verses 26 to 28. To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing of water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. A good marriage is an incredible way to imitate God. It's a wonderful way to imitate God and it's a great strategy for staying holy. It can be the greatest vehicle for sanctification. There is sanctification is basically the process of becoming more like Jesus. Justification is when we make a decision to follow Jesus. He looks at us just as if we haven't sinned and then there's the ongoing sanctification process. Marriage is a wonderful sanctification vehicle if you bring Christ to the centre. Otherwise it can unfortunately be another forum for sinfulness and pain. And angst. So we go on to this very controversial verse. Wives submit and respect. And husbands love your wife. And as Carl said in his sermon, this has been a source of controversy for decades. And I think it's not surprising when you consider the modern outlook on marriage is rightly, you know, we take for granted equality within marriage, don't we? But back then, this was a radical statement by Paul. To ask wives to submit to husbands, to ask husbands to love their wives, this was a radical countercultural statement. Women were a commodity in the first century. It was a breakthrough. It was a breakthrough if, at the end of the day, a woman wasn't beaten for not doing her duties. Um, that's true. She was there to produce kids, to prepare food, to run a good house, and to pull her weight in the in the business. So Paul, in calling couples to be light in the in the darkness, is actually picking the two things that it's going to be toughest for the man and the woman to do. If you're a woman, you're beaten, you're devalued, you're tr- you're commodified, you're treated as a possession. What's it going to be hard to do? Respect your husband, isn't it? You're going to be going, you mongrel. I hate you. I don't, I want nothing to do with you. I'm only in this relationship because I have to be. And if you're a husband, and if the whole worldview and the culture says your wife is a possession, really no different just to step up from your oxen or your beast of burden. She's there to do stuff, to prepare food, to produce kids. What's it going to be hard to do? Love your wife. You wouldn't love your oxen. You might value your oxen. So Paul picks the two toughest things because he wants the Christian marriage to be a countercultural source of light that puts a new benchmark up to the world. And it's no different today, folks. Your marriage is actually not to be just endured. It is to be a source of light and hope. It's to put a new benchmark up, a countercultural benchmark to a world that has a completely skewed view on what marriage is, and that's reflected in all the statistics. In the same way Jesus refines his bride, so the husband and wife will refine each other. Marriage is a wonderful vehicle for bringing the best out in each other, for helping us become the person God intended us to be. And that means, and I love this quote by Keller, who authors the book that's the basis of this series, we're not marrying perfection, we're marrying potential. So particularly if you're in the courtship phase, or even if you're not, forget about marrying perfection, you're marrying potential. And if you allow your relationship to be outworked and appreciated in the right context, you will see that potential in all its power and its beauty and its glory. Great quote from Timothy Keller. I love this. Within this Christian vision for marriage, 
Here's what it means to fall in love. It's to look at another person and get the glimpse of the person God is creating and to say, I see who God is making you and it excites me. And I want to be a part of that. I want to partner with you and God in the journey you're taking to this throne. And when we get there, I will look at your magnificence and say, I always knew you could look like this. I got glimpses on earth, but now look at you. Well, some of you are probably inspired. Some of you are probably thinking, blimey, that's daunting. <laughs> well, don't be daunted. Remember, this isn't about you becoming holy. This is about expressing the holiness that is already in you as children of God. And that, uh, the, the signs, the evidence of that holiness is spelled out very simply and very beautifully in Galatians 22 to 25. Love. Joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithful integrity, gentle humility, self-control, even in the face of chihuahuas. <laughs> now, the challenge is, and I love the fact, Cheryl, Cheryl, you and I, we should never be married, okay, because we're too similar. Um, the danger of this, and it's a danger that I've stumbled into, if you approach the marriage from the right perspective, from God's perspective, to tap into your partners or to help your partner realise their potential in God, in your dark moments, when you're not functioning out of that secure foundation, the temptation is you can actually make your partner a project. And I learnt that. When I, when I finished journalism to study at Bible college, I was holy Joe, you know, I knew all things. I had all textbooks, all biblical surveys in front of me and I digested them. And suddenly I started becoming unhappy with my wife's devotional patterns. <laughs> so I sat down and said, darling, I don't think you're reading the Bible enough. How do you think that was received? <laughs> so I sought some counsel and my pastor wisely said, Duncan, while you treat her as a project, she's going to think your love is somehow conditional on her spirituality. Wrong move. Just love her, mate. Pray for her. And if she really believes you love her, she will want to pursue God more earnestly. Big lesson. It's great to want to see your partner realise their potential in Christ, but don't make them a holy project. And uh, that's really important. So how do we refine each other without turning each other into holy projects? And I'll be finishing, just coming to us an end soon. Keller hits it on the head and he says, the foundation is friendship. For this, we need to have what John talked about last week. Flowing out of this identity as children of God, flowing out of this instinct to imitate God, we need to embrace a covenant, not a consumer outlook on our relationship. And young people particularly, can I really stress this, a covenant relationship, Keller basically defines as, no, I'll start with the consumer. And consumer relationship is where you approach the relationship from the perspective, I'm committed to this relationship provided it meets my needs provided it meets my needs. When it ceases to meet my needs, I might just look for an upgrade. That's why de facto relationships, inevitably almost, marriages stemming from that because they've been in this check you out phase for so long, it's hard to break. A covenant relationship on the other hand says, no, I'm committed to this relationship first and foremost. I'm committed to this relationship, not based on what it can on how it can meet my needs, I'm committed to this relationship full stop. Interestingly, when both parties have that perspective, needs are met in spectacular fashion. So, most people with a consumer outlook are looking for marriage to deliver on three things as far as I can see. Sex, status and security. 
want to explain why each of those are shaky foundations for a marriage. Sex, well, well, I thought everyone had heard the jelly bean jar analogy, but I shared it with my wife last night and she looked at me blankly. Does anyone know the jelly bean jar analogy? Okay, for young people, this is a particularly important bit of advice. There's a principle out there that for the first year of marriage, every time you are having an intimate exchange with your partner, you put a jelly bean in the jar. In the first year, it fills pretty quickly. The idea is after the first year, you take a jelly bean out every time you have an intimate exchange with your partner. It takes a lot longer to empty the jelly bean jar. So what I'm saying is that initial chemistry, that initial attraction, you can still expect to have a wonderful sex life through your marriage, but that chemistry is going to pass. If your relationship's built on that, you're in trouble. If your relationship's built on status, I'm marrying that person in order for how it's going to enhance my perception profile, etc. I think the global financial crisis has exposed that that's shaky. Same for the security. If you're marrying someone for financial security, nothing is certain. If your marriage is built on one of those things, it's on a shaky foundation. The only foundation is the one that says, I love because I'm loved. I'm a child of God. That's my identity. I'm bringing that identity to nourish this relationship. Because that is my identity, I see my partner as God sees my partner. And my heart is for that partner to realize their potential in God. And the best way to realize that is for the foundation of your marriage to be friendship. To be friendship. Just a few points Keller picks up on, on what makes a good friend. Friends love at all times. They love at all times. They are there during adversity. Their friendship is not dependent on circumstances. Proverbs 18 says it's true that true friends stick closer than a brother. Do you view your partner that way? Are you committed to your partner through good and through bad? Is your marriage grounded in a way that will help it to withstand the storms of life that will inevitably come your way? A good question I often ask myself is when you've got downtime, when you've got holiday time, who would you like to spend that time with? And I can honestly say, even though Trish and I, man, we have some rocky times at time, that when it comes to a quiet Friday night or it comes to a holiday, there is no one I would rather be with than my wife. Does your relationship pass the silence test? I love long drives. Trish loves them less. But I love long drives, and I love the fact that Trish and I don't have to speak to each other constantly. We don't have to fill the gaps on those long drives. What does that mean? It means my wife is the person with whom I'm completely comfortable to be myself. And that's what God offers in marriage. A safe place where you can truly be yourself. The second principle of friendship here is friends are transparent. They honestly confess their sins to each other, James chapter 5, verse 16, but they also lovingly point out their friend's sins. Again, if I trust that Trisha really wants me to be the best I can be in God and I'm struggling in an area of sin or a pattern, I'm going to share that with her because I know her motive is right. In the same way, if Trish trusts that I honestly want her to be the best person she can be in Christ, when I dispense or pick up on an area in her life that can be challenged, you know, she will hopefully accept it the right way. The key is, but, there are times in your marriage when it's not appropriate to point those things out. If you can't make that comment, if you can't share that insight from a place of love, don't do it. Park it, go and do some business with God and come back at a time when your heart is right. And finally, and I've talked about that as well, a key uh, platform or factor in, in marriage being a friendship is having that shared vision 
I've talked about that a bit before, but C.S. Lewis wrote that while erotic love can be depicted as two people looking at one another, friendship can be depicted as two people standing side by side looking at the same object and being transpired together. It's a great quote, isn't it? What, apart from each other, what's the vision? What's the common vision for your marriage? What's the common focal point? Is it Jesus Christ? And his heart for you? Is it Jesus Christ and his kingdom plans? Is it Jesus Christ and the extraordinary acts of transformation that he wants to outwork through your relationship? That should be our shared vision. And just finally, and just bring it to a close, sitting here this morning, and as I was praying and preparing about this, I just sensed that inevitably there'll be a lot of people here this morning who are probably feeling, look, my marriage feels like anything but a friendship. You know, my partner at times, to be honest, more often than not, is the last person I want to spend my downtime with. I really can't put my finger on any godly qualities of my partner. And that's a tough place. But just remember who you are. And we'll put up the image of the cross at this point, guys. Just remember who you are. That your children are God. And we're approaching Easter. And today's Palm Sunday. Okay? Palm Sunday was when Jesus... The week before Jesus made his journey to the cross. I'm pleased to say, folks, in fact, I'm rejoiced to say that because of Easter, we don't make our march towards the cross, but we make our march from the cross. As children of God, your identity is being secured. Your marriage might feel like it's in trouble, but nothing is beyond God. The selfishness and the destructive behaviour that perhaps has led to your marriage being in that position, that has actually already been dealt with by Jesus Christ on the cross and there's no quick fix sanctification is an ongoing process but if that's you this morning can I ask you bring your struggles bring your worries to the cross commit them to Jesus confess them and then march today from the cross one step at a time that step might be going home and apologising to your partner that step might be seeking out someone at church and saying I need you to walk with me I need you to pray with me I'm not coping in this that step might be signing up for marriage counselling. That step might be going and doing a mission trip. We can really appreciate your partner in a new way. I want to speak to those people this morning also who perhaps have come from a place where, um, where they've been affected by a broken relationship. Perhaps you've uh, been through a divorce yourself. Perhaps someone in your family has. I come from, my parents were divorced. And that caused me a lot of pain. But can I say I've also seen God's grace outwork spectacularly in that situation. And the cross is where you need to go as well today. Because whatever led to that breakdown has been dealt with on the cross. He's the God of the fresh start. And you might be fearing, how do I make sure I don't get back into that dysfunctional pattern? Well, he's the God of the fresh start. He can actually turn that dysfunction into opportunity. He can give you an empathy for people going through those same struggles that other people will not have. That's certainly been my situation. And both my sister and I have great marriages. And now my mother does as well. Praise God. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're a young person and you're contemplating marriage. But perhaps you're coming at it and the foundation you're sort of putting in a place is based on sex, status, security. Confess that. Ask God to give you a fresh perspective on your partner this morning. But for all of us, I really want you to understand this morning, but because of the cross of Christ that we celebrate and we should celebrate in a week's time, you are children of God. You're children of God. You're called to imitate him. 
Marriage is an extraordinary way. It's one of the most important relationships to express that. But I want you to be filled with hope this morning. Because none of us are there yet. We're in that already not yet phase. But we are on the journey, as it says, to that day when Christ will present us unblemished and holy and perfect with our partners before the throne. That's our hope. That's our destiny. He doesn't expect perfection. He just expects us to grab our identity, to live out of that, and to do the best we can, knowing that we are loved by the King. And this week I had a really tough week on a few fronts. Not my marriage, thankfully. That was a sanctuary this week. And I actually, I heard a sermon and I heard this song being quoted. It's from the movie Selma, which is Martin Luther King. And it's a song of triumph. It's a song of overcoming. And I think some of you might say, what is my marriage in contrast to that? Well, can I tell you that I think one of the most destructive things happening in society today is the, is the deconstruction of marriage. We need to fight for our marriages. This church needs to fight for its marriages. We need to support our marriages. We need to recognize that our marriages can be a sanctuary. Amen? So why don't you sit there? there obviously, there are some civil rights-related lyrics which aren't relevant, but the song is about hope and the glory that is ours and ours to come. Amen. Hands to the heavens, no man, no weapon. Formed against, yes, glory is destined. Everyday women and men become legends. Sins that go against our skin become blessings. The movement is a rhythm to us. Freedom is like religion to us. Justice is juxtaposition in us. Justice for all just ain't specific enough. One son died, his spirit is revisiting us. True and living, living in us. Resistance is us. That's why Rosa sat on the bus. That's why we walked through Ferguson with our hands up. When it go down, we woman and man up. They say stay down and we stand up. Shots, we on the ground. The camera panned up. King pointed to the mountaintop and we ran up. One day. When the glory comes, it will be ours, it will be ours, oh, one day, when the war is won, we will be sure, we will be sure, oh, no. Now the war is not over, victory isn't won, but we'll fight on to the finish, and then when it's all done, we'll cry glory, oh glory, oh, we'll cry glory, Every man, woman, and child. Even Jesus got his crown in front of a crowd. They march with the torch, we gon' run with it now. Never look back, we done gone hundreds of miles. From dark roads, heroes, to become a hero. Facing the league of justice, his power was the people. Enemy is lethal, a king became regal. Saw the face of Jim Crow under a bald ego. The biggest weapon. It's to stay peaceful, we sing. Our music is the cuts that we bleed through. Somewhere in the dream we had an epiphany. 
Now we right the wrongs in history. No one can win the war individually. It take the wisdom of the elders and young people's energy. Welcome to the story we call victory. The coming of the Lord. My eyes have seen the glory. One day when the glory comes.